from two Enneagram map makers. Charting the unexplored interior landscape of the ego with Chris Hewitt. Welcome back to Enneagram Map Makers. We are here setting out to chart the unexplored interior landscapes of the ego through accessible, human, and honest conversations with some of the Enneagram's most notable teachers. And today on the show, we have Sandra Maitri. To be honest, when I sent her an email asking if she'd be willing to have a conversation, I thought she'd graciously pass, but to my surprise, her willingness to join me was actually the continuation of everything I've known her to be hospitable, receptive, and open-hearted. I met Sandra in Seattle a few years ago at a three-day training, the Enneagram of Transformation. Um, she offered in partnership with the Enneagram in Seattle, one of the very best regional groups we have here in the U.S. And this is a shameless plug, but chase down the work that they're doing, the folks that they bring, and and and, and the programs that they offer are, are excellent. But as we sat with Sandra for a few days, uh, man, the 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 depth of her reflections and, and, and the power of, of her humility really just washed over those of us that had gathered. It uh, was something that stuck with me and, and, and continues to, to come back up into my own reflections and, and my own conversations with, with others. So one of the things that I um, especially love about Sandra is this important role that she plays in, in the modern history of the Enneagram of Personality. I mean, she really is one of the the, the more recognizable and, and visible teachers out there who was part of Claudio's earliest groups. And, and and just to imagine what that must have been like as a university student, to, to sit with this man in his backyard and in his living room, just to, to be part of the community and the group that was developing types, which is, has really become this tradition, the Enneagram of personality is, is absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's exceptional. And that she would share about this, that she would reflect on this and, and try to remember as a young woman what it was like, I can't get enough of it. And that's where we're at, right? So, so Sandra was, was there in 1971, 1972, 1973. That was the year I was born, actually. And, and what makes this remarkable is that we're just really a, a year away from the 50th anniversary of the Enneagram of personality, that it's truly a young, evolving tradition. And, and that folks who are around, that folks who are actually contributing to that conversation and what this has become are, are, are still with us. It's, it's a real gift. It's, it's something to cherish and it's something to treasure. And, and I'm so grateful that she's willing to, to share some of that with us. What I loved about this conversation was her gentleness and trying to clear up some of the, the so-called Inia heresies that are out there. And what we've, we kind of have seen happen over these last few years is, is with the sort of floodgates opening up on, on Instagram and, and all of these books that are, 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 are being rushed to publish. There is a little bit of... Um, I don't want to uh, sound saltier or grumpier or cranky here, but there is a little bit of sloppiness as it comes to accuracy within theory, within lineage of, of teaching and, and within some of the, the fundamental and core aspects of the tradition. And you'll hear this in, in my conversation with Sandra that she's actually very eager to try to help clear some of these things up and and not because she she feels compelled to to be corrective or or, or or even sort of condescending to people that get things wrong but i think because she cares so deeply for for what this teaching has meant to her on a personal level that i think she wants 
to ensure that the rest of us are are working with the best of it, the the, the clearest and and most accurate way to to relate to it and, and to be seen and held in it. And this is really what's um kind of missing, I think, out there on the landscape right now is 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 there's so many folks who are are, are curating and creating and and publishing and disseminating content. And, and you can kind of tell when they're disconnected from a, a teacher, a, a mentor, a, a guide, or an elder. And, and I think what has been really generous about Sandra is she's made herself available to, to being that for so many of us and, and for so many folks. But you see, when, when she chooses those that, that she accompanies, it's not for a, a conversation here or there, or it's not for a weekend. It, it really is over the course of, of several years, seeing these things really shape the, the soul of a person who says yes to loving themselves and, and yes to becoming who they've, they've always meant to be. I think what's unique about Sandra's unique contribution to the Enneagram lineage is, is first of all, her, her proximity to, 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 to the very beginning of how the teaching developed into a personality overlay or into a personality system and 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 that she was was part of the conversations of, of sort of sussing this out and 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 you know trying on new ideas and and rejecting things that didn't fit or, or didn't work gives her the credibility to actually bring i i think these these clarifying and and, and corrective nudges towards the future of where this has to go but I also think one of the, the really unique contributions that she made, if you look at the, the sort of history of this unfolding um, conversation, was her commitment to allowing this to be rooted in, in a deep spirituality, regardless of what your tradition was. And when you're with her and when you listen to her, you, you experience that. You experience the, the open-heartedness, but also the, the seriousness of this as a sacred teaching and a sacred tradition with the power to, to lead to really profound transformation. And so I would say that if what you, you hear in a conversation with Sandra is, is, is interesting and you're, you're curious to find out more, you, you can of course get online and, and find some of her teaching um, on YouTube as, as well as other places. But I would also say engage some of her, her fellow students who've become teachers. You know, the work of Hamid Ali, who writes under A.H. Almas, was also there with her at the beginning. And when you look at what of um, Hamid is, has written and, and how he teaches and, and frames the Enneagram around the diamond approach, it, it complements, it supports, and enhances the depth of what Sandra's saying. And, and I think it only helps take it further and, and, and shows new and different ways to, to bring this inside as well as to allow for what happens to us inside to be expressed as, as the ways that we heal and, and help contribute to the new we. The world, as it urgently needs to be healed, is desperate. And, and Sandra is one of those midwives to, to bringing peace and harmony and hope back into the places where we've neglected it and, and forgotten it. I think you'll particularly find our conversation about debunking the integration and disintegration theory of the Enneagram's interior crisscrossing lines interesting. And if you can keep up with what she's saying, and if you can really understand the way that she impacts this theory through the inner flow, I think it will change how you understand this entire tradition. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sandra as much as I did. So could you um, maybe introduce yourself a little bit to folks out there who 
maybe haven't tracked with your work over the years or, or folks who still um, are about to pick up your book, just to give a little bit of context where you're you're at and, and what's keeping you busy these days. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah, I began work with the Enneagram um, let's see, in 1971, I think it was. Um, and it's been a big piece of my life ever since. And um, I, after the, there was kind of a surge of popularity in the Enneagram, uh, interest in the Enneagram in the 80s, and a lot of books got published that were talking about the Enneagram. Um, but what was left out was the context, actually, in which I learned it, which was as part of personal growth work, spiritual work, spiritual development. And it was mainly being taught and written about as a psychological tool which is fine because it is that, but there's another dimension to it. There's a reason for working with that material beyond just, you know, learning how to feel better. And so that was the impetus, really, for publishing my first book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, because uh, I wanted to really put the Enneagram in the context within which I'd learned it. And that felt to me like an honoring of the tradition that I had come out of. So anyway, part of the orientation of that book has to do with the spiritual work that I'm involved in, which is that of the Diamond Approach, which was founded by Hamid Ali, A.H. Almas, who was actually an old friend of mine during the Claudio days where I learned the Enneagram. And I've been a teacher of the Diamond Approach for the last uh, 35 years, and that's primarily what I do. So I teach the Enneagram as part of that work. It's a subset of that work. It's not the main focus, uh, but to me it's a very important focus. And um, I teach groups in the UK. I teach a group here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I work with private students. And I'm currently working on two books. Uh, one is a memoir that covers that time with Claudio back in the wild days of the 70s and early 80s. And really the beginning of the consciousness movement as we know it today. And I'm also working on another book that reflects what I've seen about the different types and the biggest difficulties they have, the kind of um, obstacles that unless those get addressed, there isn't really a profound inner transformation. So that's what I'm working on. I also paint and um, for my own enjoyment, really. So maybe that gets you up to speed a little bit with me. Yeah. So that's that's a lot, actually. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of maybe un unpack a little bit of that with you. So sure. could you um, maybe explain briefly what the diamond approach is for, for folks who, who may not have heard of this before? 
The diamond approach is a, it's a new spiritual path. It's a new form of spiritual work. And the big innovation of it is that rather than working at transcending our ego structure, our personality structure, the, the diamond approach has a methodology that helps people move through it, so to penetrate it. One of the ancient teachings in all of the old spiritual traditions is that our ego has no ultimate existence. And so, what the diamond approach does is say, okay, if that's the case, then let's go into it and find out what's beyond it. So, let's mm. penetrate it with our understanding and our experience. And what we discover is the truth that many ancient teachers have talked about for, you know, centuries that the ego structure is an illusion. It's like a, a movie that we're caught up in. And if you, if you penetrate through it, kind of like sticking your hand into the light in a movie theater that the film is going through, you know, you recognize that it's a movie and that uh, it doesn't have an ultimate existence, even though you're completely caught up in the drama. Hmm. So, in a nutshell, that's the way the diamond approach works. And this is founded by Hamid, right? Yes. This Was this working off of this notion where Ichaso sort of suggested that perhaps the holy ideas were the, the psychocatalyzers of, of the Enneagram? Well, I think that that's one way of looking at it. Uh, Hamid wrote a book called Facets of Unity, in which he really unpacks his understanding of what the holy ideas are all about, which is essentially nine different enlightened views of reality. So, if you really understand the holy ideas, then you get that the distortions at the core of each enneotype don't have an ultimate existence. We only believe in them as long as we're giving them energy essentially. And, and so, I mean, this is just incredible. And so, when you bring that into spirituality and, and like you have with your work, what does that begin to do to, to our sense of reality? How does the spiritual become mm -hmm. maybe a, a, a correction or a completion or maybe a continuation of, of this illusion that, that we're living in? Well, I, in my own personal experience, what began to happen gradually in my work with the Diamond Approach is that my experience of reality began to change, and I began increasingly to perceive the depth dimension instead of just the surface of things. So, in other words, the the domain of true nature, or if you're coming from a theistic point of view of the divine or God. In other words, to see that as the, to know that and to experience it as the core of what's here. Mm -hmm. And that essentially everything is a manifestation of the divine. It's a, a, an individualized expression of the divine. So, a good metaphor is that as we work with this kind of work, like the diamond approach, 
the veils that block us from seeing and perceiving directly what's here gradually thin out and our view becomes clearer and clearer. And mm. then we can begin to perceive what's being pointed out as the nine holy ideas, as ba basic ways of understanding reality. Hmm. Um, but until that point comes, until, until a person is really able to directly engage reality as it is, the holy ideas only remain concepts. Hmm. So when you mention this this idea of the individualized manifestations of the divine, yes, where is an invitation tucked into that, or or where is something lost in us individualizing our spirituality? Well, uh, in answer to the first part of your question, the invitation is really to discover our true nature and to recognize that it's inseparable from everyone and everything that exists in all dimensions, you know, that truly we are one. We are one mm. wholeness, one totality. Mm. So, did you, were you always spiritual? Did you grow up in a, in, a, in, a, in a spiritual environment or were you always sort of spiritually attuned? Um. No, I I wouldn't say so. I would say that I was always very sensitive. Uh, I I seem to be a lot more sensitive to impacts in the environment than um, the rest of my family was. And my mother kind of dabbled a little bit in Rosicrucian and tarot and things like that. And she knew psychics growing up, so there was a little bit of that sort of uh, influence. But actually, at a very young age, at about eight or nine, I knew that there was such a thing as God, as the divine. And I had direct experiences. Um, so, I, you know, I guess, to answer your question, I guess that really spirituality was a very big part of me from the beginning, uh, now that I look back at it. I, I didn't really frame it that way. And so then when you were a, a student, university student, or, or was it a graduate student when you met Claudio? Uh, I was in art school at the time. Uh, I That's had begun, amazing. Huh? That's amazing. You're an art student. Yeah, yeah. I'd begun doing artwork when I was in high school very seriously, and that was what um, I thought my life was going to be all about. So, I was in art school. Um, my roommate was, uh, we met in art school, Karen Johnson, who now is um, the co-founder of The Diamond Approach with Hamid, and she's written a memoir recently uh, about the development of The Diamond Approach. Anyway, Karen and I uh, had a mutual boyfriend, and it was a big heartbreak for me, and mm -hmm. it led me to seek help. And at the time, the hot therapy... In the, in the kind of burgeoning New Age community was, was Gestalt. So I was looking for a Gestalt group to join so I could work out my, my 
troubles, my difficulties, and I knew that I was I was challenged relationally. Um, and so a friend gave me the flyer about Claudio's group that was beginning, and uh, he had worked with Fritz Perls, who was the founder of Gestalt. And mm -hmm. so Gestalt was going to be part of this group, as well as the Enneagram, as well as a whole range of spiritual perspectives. And I thought, you know, great, a Gestalt group that has a spiritual orientation. Mm. And as it turned out, there was very little Gestalt and mostly spiritual. Um, mm. But that really, that really changed the course of my life. How many of you were part of that, that, that first group back in 71? I think there were about 70 people originally. And then it kind of mm. dwindled down, um, but I don't think it really got below maybe 50. And then he started a second group, I think a year or two after the first one. So there were, there were a number of people, you know, maybe, mm. maybe 100 people altogether. And can you um, talk a little bit about what Claudio was like back then? I, can't, I just can't imagine like this young, brilliant sort of curious teacher sort of spreading something that really was kind of a living tradition, right? Yeah, yeah. He had just um, finished working with Oscar Ichazo in the desert of Arica, Chile, and that was where he had learned the Enneagram. He learned it from Oscar Ichazo. And uh, according to interviews that Claudio has given um Pretty recently, in the last couple of decades, he says that uh, he really added to the basic theory that Ichazo taught him. And because he was a psychiatrist, he infused the Enneagram with the psychological understanding that it has today. So, Claudio was incredible. He's a... He he, he died this year, unfortunately, but yeah. he was an incredibly brilliant man, and he was a synthesizer. He was a real pioneer in synthesizing different spiritual traditions to find the common denominator and to extract from numerous ones different orientations toward inner work. And so, in the time that I was in the group, it, it really, the heyday of the group lasted only about four years, but they were kind of jam-packed years. He brought every spiritual teacher who passed through the Bay Area to our group. And so, we were exposed to Jewish mystics, we were exposed to Hindu teachers, we were exposed to Buddhist teachers, Tibetan Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists, you name it pretty much, we learned from these people. Uh, so it was an incredibly rich and transformative time, I would say, for everybody. So I is this right? It was it was during those those early days, 71, 72, 73, that that Claudia and, and and essentially you all as a group were developing this idea of Enneatype? Well, he really he used the term Enneatype decades later. We didn't use it back then. We we talked about our fixation. Uh, but I agree with him that Enneatype is a better way to to talk about our personality structures 
from the perspective of the Enneagram. Um, but he, he really, he had the bare bones of the theory. And then he had us do a lot of work digging into our own personal experience and fleshing out the theory. So for you, how was it coming to terms with your own fixation then? Or what was that process like as, as, a, as a young person sort of looking inward and, and trying to hold, let's say, that aspect of self with compassion? Well, I don't think I really had the capacity to hold it with compassion at the time. Mm. Um, but it was a process. Uh, I'm a two. And, of course, the, the first time he introduced the Enneagram, which was really one of the first times I met him sitting in his backyard with like 12 people, um, I really wanted to be a four. And... Mm. Then I asked him one day what he thought I was, and, and uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, I'm either a four or a two. And he said, you're a two, my dear. And mm. uh, it was the one I least wanted to be. And at the same time, learning about my type removed decades of beating around the bush that I would have spent trying to understand myself and how I work. Mm. So it was kind of like a fast track to psychological understanding. It's funny, a lot of people, it seems like have a really hard time at first sort of making peace with, with discovery of their type. What do you think that is in us that, that wants to resist almost inevitably the, the very type that, that we end up sort of, sort of welcoming? Well, ho I, th I think hopefully we end up welcoming it. At least we recognize it is our type. But I, I think it has to do with our difficulty as human beings with seeing ourselves in an objective way instead of seeing ourselves as we would like to see ourselves and wish that we were, but instead to just really see, okay, this is how I work. These are mm. the patterns that I live. So I think it takes a lot, of, um, a lot of strong desire to see the truth about oneself. Mm. Let me ask you this. So, you know, today there's, there's so much noise around the Enneagram and everybody is Ennea curious. And, you know, it's on everybody's social media profiles and, and, and people are almost leading with, with type. It, it, it's, it's amazing to consider that you were doing this in a group that there was sort of a commitment to the group that you actually took a few years together to sort of roll this out. Can you talk a little bit about the, the gifts of, of actually doing this work in community? Yeah, I learned a tremendous amount firsthand from other people about their type. Also, of course, meeting with people of my type, we did a lot of exercises together in Claudio's group where we explored different nuances of the Enneagram theory, like the wings and the inner flow um, and the instincts and all of that. And hearing from other people, their experience really fleshed out for me the theory so that it was, it, it became a really lived experience and something that came to feel really like part of my bones, you know, part of, mm. part of what I know 
uh, not mm-hmm. in a conceptual way, but in an experiential way. So you just mentioned the inner flow. I learned the Enneagram almost 20 years ago in the slums of Cambodia, but it was not until I, I think it was probably two or three years ago that I, I saw you in Seattle that you you explained that inner flow and it, and it finally made sense. Can you talk a little bit about where you feel like or where it seems like maybe in, in, in today's rendering of these crisscrossing lines in the circle where we've maybe misunderstood this a little bit and yeah. maybe what the original intention or understanding of this was? Yeah, the inner flow basically speaks to a kind of natural movement between the enneotypes. And the way that I see it, the way I came to see it, and it's part of what I write about in my first book, is that each enneotype can be seen as an attempt to resolve our disconnection from true nature. Hmm. And each one, because the, the attempt is on the level of the personality, can't work. It's, it's doomed to failure. In other words, your ego structure cannot connect with your true nature. It has to get out of the way for you to connect with true nature. But nonetheless, each of the types can be seen as an attempt to reclaim the true nature that they've lost. Like, for instance, Mm. it's pretty obvious with point one, where the personality type is very perfectionistic, that what's trying to be connected with by ones is a sense of their own innate perfection. And so they attempt to do it by constantly perfecting themselves and others, whereas the real solution is recognizing directly that, hey, I am just fine and everything else is just fine exactly as it is, Hmm. right? So it's that kind of conundrum. So anyway, back to the inner flow. So each type is attempting to regain what our heart's desire is, which is connection with our deepest nature, the source of what will ultimately satisfy us. And the way I see it is that You know, like you're a one and you attempt to do it by perfecting things and that doesn't work. And so there's a natural movement to four where there's a sense of melancholy and a sense of longing for what's been lost. And then that becomes intolerable after a while or too depressing. And there's a natural movement to two where you try to connect with someone who looks like they're deeply in touch with something real. And so twos become the groupies of the Enneagram, essentially. You know, they kind of, they kind of play to whomever they see as a star. And so on around the Enneagram. So there's a, a kind of natural logic to the flow from one type to the other. And that's what the arrows on the diagram that you see sometimes of the Enneagram represents. Now, a distortion of that understanding comes in what people call the stress point. And no matter how many times I talk about it and try to get people 
to stop using that terminology because I don't think it's accurate. People inevitably fall back on it. But anyway, the, the, the way that I see what's called the stress point, the point one movement beyond your enneotype is a point where your personality structure essentially is building another layer of defendedness. Hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's another layer, it's another style that attempts to compensate for what you're not resolving or not getting as your own enneotype. So, I, I basically see it as the defensive point, and hmm. that's what I call it. Uh, the point, if you move one point moving backwards against the flow of the arrows, is what Claudio called the heart point. And mm. Hamid really unpacked what that meant, which is that uh, the heart point forms a deeper psychodynamic layer to the personality. So it kind of underlies the characteristics of your enneotype. So it's closer to who you actually feel yourself to be. And those qualities, for one reason or another, were for each of us not encouraged or suppressed, the qualities of, of our heart point, when we were quite young children. And so we can understand the development of our enneotype as a pattern that worked in our family system in contrast to the heart point, which did not work, did not get supported. Hmm. So it remains part of us, and it remains a very young part of us. Uh, Hamid hmm. named it the soul child. So the, the child part that is uh, characterized by the qualities of our heart point is what he called the soul child. Hmm. So... In our work in the Diamond Approach, connecting with your soul child is a very important part of understanding yourself and not uh, learning how to not act out in ways that aren't congruent with your highest good. Enneagram map makers will continue in a moment. In Chris's book, The Enneagram of Belonging, you'll discover that knowing ourselves doesn't necessarily mean we accept ourselves. Most of us tend to curate the personality of our type, leading with the traits we perceive as positive and sidelining the traits that cause us shame. But what if it all belonged? Rather than furthering our own fragmentation, what if we dared to make peace with the whole of who we are with bold compassion? The Enneagram of Belonging is your guide to this essential journey. Get your copy today, wherever books are sold. So this is going to bum some people out out there because you know this notion of integration and disintegration mm -hmm. became really popular and then almost canonized. And yeah. um, maybe I'm wrong. You can you can maybe correct me here, but I, I, I understood that. That actually sort of came forward during a question and answer session with some students in, in Naranjo or Claudio essentially put that out there, integration and disintegration, not realizing that it would stick and later on actually commented it never meant that, that actually folks shouldn't think in those terms. Is that 
Does that sound accurate? Yes. Yes. So it's so like I said, I think it's going to bum some people out if it never meant integration or disintegration. Then, then what do we do with this kind of, let's say, popularized Enya heresy? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Chris, I think there are a number of those. Another one that I run across constantly is people talking about their type and they say, I'm a such and such with a such and such wing. And Mm. the way that we learned the wings, the way that I learned it directly from Claudio, is that our enneotype can be understood as the distillation of both wings. Mm. And If we look in our history, we can probably recognize periods growing up when we kind of bounced from one wing to the other. And like whole periods of your life where you may have looked like one wing and then whole periods where you may have looked like the other wing. And what we end up doing is finding the balance. And it's it's always an uneasy balance. Um, but in my own direct experience, I can experience myself even today with, you know, as much inner work as I've done, that there is a movement back and forth between the wings within my structure. Hmm. It doesn't happen overtly like it used to. You know, I don't run around looking like a little one or like, you know, a little three. Um Except sometimes, of course. But those are tendencies within my consciousness. So I think it's a real misunderstanding to, uh, like, essentially lose the other wing when you say I'm a such and such with a, like, I'm a two with a one wing or a two with a three wing. You know, I hear people say that and it's, no, you're, you're a two with a one and a three wing. You've got both of them. Or is it more accurate to say you're the space between one and three? Yes. Yes. And yes. you fill that out with your, your, your lived experience. You, you let that become sort of organic and, and in process. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and what is true about that notion is that one wing may be stronger, but Hmm. What people forget is that they have the other one. And I, I think that's such a rich uh, way of understanding our psychology is by really recognizing both wings. Hmm. Yeah, it's just it's letting everything belong, right? Because yeah, we, yeah. I, I have this idea that if any one of the fragments that I allow to lay claim to the whole of who I think I am, if I don't let the other fragments belong, the truth is there's no no actual aspect can belong. That's so right. The compassionate work of just making room for for every bit of self and yes, and, and it seems like the enneagram actually can be a manual for that. If we look beyond sort of the fixation, if we look beyond the confines of type, so um, could I ask you maybe one more sort of like little wonky question? Uh, sure. I I maybe I, I I've gotten this wrong. But uh, I, I thought I heard you once say that, or metaphor type as a kind of prison where we've incarcerated our essence. Could you talk about what you perceive type to be? And, and, and I mean, what do we do with this, like the good and the bad of it? How do we include it or live beyond it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually recall saying that, Chris. And 
Um, I hope it doesn't become like integration, disintegration, you know, coming out of the mouth of Claudio. Um, Sure, sure. Because that's not really accurate to how I see things, even though I may have said it, you know, in a shorthand kind of way. But basically, I see that our enneotype is the pattern that our individual consciousness has learned how to flow within. So, Mm. it's a set of patterns, you could think of it like a mold, that the substance of our consciousness takes. But it's not the substance of what we are. It's just a way that we tend to move in the world until we open it up and we shift it. It's kind of like a river flowing within um, really predetermined banks. And the more self-understanding you have, the more that those banks stop containing the fluidity, the flow of your consciousness. And your consciousness then can expand beyond those confines, essentially. Is that clear? Yeah, so this is great. So so how do I how do I make peace with with type or how do I have an honest relationship with my type? Well, I think first of all you need to honestly recognize what your type is. Uh, and of course that's a challenge for many people. I meet people constantly who think they're a certain type because they've picked up one or two keywords in a book or in something they've heard, and they haven't grasped the whole dimensionality, the whole gestalt, really, of what an enneotype is. Um, So, really getting that, I think, is a first step. And then I think what we were talking about earlier, accepting the parts of the Enneagram understanding, which is very, very thorough at this point, that might not be so egocentric, that we might not want Mm. to see about ourselves, Uh, and opening our hearts to those aspects of how we behave. It's not who we are. I think a common misunderstanding is that we are our enneotype, and I would reframe that and say, no, you are not your enneotype. That's just a pattern. You know, how could Mm. it be who you are if theoretically a ninth of the world's population shares this particular way of being with you? It can't be that personal. It can't be Mm. that unique, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, this is... um. Thank you for 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 being a a, a tour guide of, of of the ego here and really making this safe to to sort of dig into. Great. Can we talk a little bit about just what what's going on with you? So you're working on a memoir. Yeah. What's 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 been surprising in the process of of reflecting on 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 who you've become and 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 who you are today. Oh, there's been so much about it that's been surprising. Um, I think the biggest thing is the 
just the fact, I know that memoirs have become very, very uh, fashionable these days, and I really understand why. Because for me, it was it was about really listening to my own story and hearing it mm. for myself, uh, and and really making peace with it all and digesting it all, so that I can completely let it go. Uh, so, mm. in, in a kind of funny way, the the writing down of it all feels like a letting go of it all. Hmm. Are there parts of yourself that it feels like you're just finally getting to know for the first time or is it more a kind of remembering the, the the introduction to these parts of who you who you are yeah I wouldn't say that I'm finding parts that I haven't known I mean I've been working on myself now since I was 21 and I'm now 70 so there's there's not a lot of stones that haven't been turned at this point. Uh, and it's been the chief focus of my life. So mm. I, I wouldn't, I, I think what's been surprising is who I was and to see how I'm not caught in those same patterns the way that I was back then. So, you know, I hope it's a message of hope that growth happens. I, I was quite troubled when I first began working with Claudio, and uh, I, I don't feel that way at all anymore. Hmm. Well, I appreciate the example that you set. You know, that's, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of see, like, the people who continue to grow and to continue to uh, allow their transformation to sort of resuscitate the the fullness of who they are. I think this. I think that conversion isn't a one time event. It's a it's an ongoing series of minor deaths. Yeah. And um, and it's great yeah. to have role models like you who show us that. Man, even through our our sixties and into our our seventies, there's there's still there's still discovery. There's still there's still the possibility of 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 this journey of becoming. So thank yes. you for for making that yes. beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about what what's bringing you joy in your life these days? Well, writing brings me joy, um, gardening, painting. I've, I've done artwork ever since I was, well, ever since I was little, really, and I never wanted to do it professionally because I looked at professional artists' lives and I thought, that is not what I want. Uh, you know, many of them were troubled and... And you know, I wanted to move through my troubles instead of instead of um, using that as a basis for art. But anyway, I, I really enjoy making art. Um, I enjoy gardening. I enjoy my friends. Um, I enjoy the contact that I am graced to have with the depth of being at this point in my mm. life. Mm. And of course, being with my husband, my husband and my cats. Mm. <laughs> mm. I will say this, you're you're an artist though with the, with your words and, and and I would almost say you're you're you kind of look at the soul as a canvas and so it does seem like there's some some resonance of your vocational fidelity with with that that natural giftedness or your talent that you mm. have in that way too. Mm. I remember this when I was in Seattle with you like you have this ability to take these really profound and esoteric concepts and really gracefully just 
sort of weave human experience around them and, and then sort of like little paper sailboats on a pond just sort of float it out there and say, here it goes. Like, just appreciate this for what it is. It's it's remarkable, actually. So I think you took us really deep. I think mm. probably deeper than most of the folks listening will, will realize. I, I think it was brilliant. I think it was perfect. Mm. Thanks. You're really gifted. I mean this. Like I, 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 um, when we were in Seattle and heard you, it was trans. It's transformational, and and I don't want to sort of overplay a word that's been thinned out. But just first of all, being in your presence was life changing. But really, you you are able to um, frame things so in such a a beautiful and nuanced and sophisticated way, but with such simplicity too. It was mm-hmm. remarkable. So well, this is great. I, I try to feel through what I'm expressing as I teach or as I articulate something so that it actually reaches other people's souls. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it has to be very experiential if we really want to understand something. So that's, that's always what I'm attempting to do is, is to simplify and render stuff that seems very esoteric into something accessible. And, and I think that's what you've been able to accomplish in your books. And I'll say this, those, those books are, are, are just foundational. And I'll say this for anybody who's, who's listening, who, who hasn't read them. It's, it's what everyone else and everyone since has sort of built off of. It's like, we're all standing on your shoulders Mm. and, uh, and so thank you for for those and i can't wait to see what else you'll continue to produce so let me let me just say this sandra i uh i I really am overwhelmed with gratitude for for this time but more than that i i am overwhelmed with gratitude for for the fecundancy of your life and the 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 consistency of you saying yes to becoming who you've become and, and and the gift that that is in an example um, and in an invitation to the rest of us. And so, really, I, I bow to you with, with humility and, and admiration. And thank you for, for being part of this conversation. Mm, thank you. Thank you. There you have it. An, an amazing soul. One of the most radiant and authentic that, that you'll come across. If there's something that Sandra shared that causes you to want to wanna chase down her work and explore what she's up to even more, then I, I really can't recommend highly enough her books, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, Nine Faces of the Soul, and The Enneagram of Passions and Virtues, Finding the Way Home. And I, I, I know that you will return to these over and over again um, to let these words reform and reshape and, and retrace the boundaries of, of your own ego's limits as well as to, to come back to and, and be comforted and inspired by. You can also log on to her website, sandramatry.com, where you can learn more about her ongoing Diamond Approach groups that she co-leads, as well as um, her trainings and, and workshops and retreats. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill for the gorgeous, as always, Sleeping at Last music, and the gifted and talented genius that is Corey Pig for producing the show. And lastly, the sweet voice you hear helping at the beginning of the show is my dear friend Edith Moore, all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand.